A grand jury indicts a ham sandwich part three, quid pro quo by Derek Siegel. At the very least, it does seem extremely strange to prosecute somebody who was president of the United States at the time they supposedly took these documents. Even though they had the power to render them declassified any time a president has total control of a classified document, but I want to make a few observations first before we get to both the indictment that I think really put this indictment into context and make clear that this is another case of the political establishment acting very scared that Donald Trump is going to run again in 2024 and win. All polls right now show that he would, because they fear his return to the White House and believe they may not have a chance to defeat him politically. They thought they did in 2016. He won. They were sure they were going to beat him in 2020. He came very close in a very close election. Now they are, with Biden having to defend the status quo, with him being 82 years old, with him being 82 years old, with him being obviously addled, petrified that Trump will run and win again. One of the ways that establishments in other countries try to render people ineligible who they don't want to run is by concocting criminal charges against them and rendering them legally ineligible, or at least dirtying their name enough to make it impossible for them to run where they almost have to run from a prison cell, which very well may be the case with President Trump, given not just this indictment, but also the one that came in April from the Manhattan D. We just saw what happens when Trump has to face a Manhattan jury and the defamation case brought by the writer Act. John Carroll, who claims that Trump defamed her by denying that he sexually assaulted her in a Bergdorf-Goodman dressing room, he lost that case. Even though there are massive holes, legally speaking, in that case he could end up being convicted for that indictment. He could end up being convicted for this current one. There's still the chance that he may be indicted because of speeches that he gave, which the Biden Justice Department might want to say incited what they regard as the insurrection on January 6th. Liberals are desperate for Merrick Garland to come up with an indictment against Trump for that. There's three possible criminal cases that he's facing and could very well put him in prison in 2024. He can either run for president or try to bargain his way out of those charges by agreeing not to run for president. Very revealingly, a major liberal TV personality suggested last night ought to happen that they should let Trump out of these charges in exchange for his promise not to run in 2024, which clearly is the end goal for the establishment here, overclassification, new opacity. Now, whenever it comes to the question of mishandling classified information, I want to make a few points. One of the things I think is so important to note is that in Washington, almost everything is deemed classified. All the time we hear because the government wants us to think that if a document is deemed classified or secret, and especially top secret, it means that this is an incredibly sensitive document. That national security would be jeopardized if anybody were able to see it. And yet, to say that that's untrue and that's a fairy tale is to put it mildly. The reality is one of the main problems we have in the United States is that the United States government reflexively makes everything that it does a secret legally, to the point where it's a felony to reveal anything that they do. If you think about it in a healthy democracy, in a functioning republic, the way things are supposed to work is that we're supposed to know essentially everything about what our government does. There are some exceptions. If they're ordering troop movements in a war, if there are documents about how to launch nuclear weapons, of course, there are times where secrecy is appropriate. But that should be the exception, not the rule. The rule should be, we're supposed to know what our government is doing. They're supposed to be transparent about how public power is being exercised. That's why it's called the public sector. It's supposed to be something that everyone can see how they're exercising their power, with very few exceptions. Conversely, the government's not supposed to know anything about what we do as private citizens. That's why we're called private citizens. That's why the right to privacy is guaranteed in the Constitution. That's why the founders emphasized all the protections that we had to have over the government's ability to learn things about us. 
to search our homes, to search our documents. They could only do that with a search warrant and a finding of probable cause. So the framework in any healthy democracy is we know everything about what our government does, and they know nothing about what we do. And again, there are some exceptions to that as well. The government is supposed to learn things about us. If they can go to a court and show there is probable cause that we committed a crime, they get a search warrant. They can read our emails or listen to our phone calls. But that's supposed to be the exception. And what has happened in the United States is that it is completely reversed. In the United States, almost everything the U.S. government does is secret is taking place behind a wall of opaque lack of transparency. We know almost nothing about what our government does because everything's done in the dark behind this wall of secrecy. And at the same time, because of the ubiquitous surveillance state that has been implemented, the spying that is done by the NSA and the FBI, not only on people they get search warrants for, but on all of us, they know almost everything about what we do, about with whom we communicate, about how we use the Internet, about with whom we're communicating, and oftentimes where we are. And so this framework has been completely reversed. One of the ways I first learned about that and started realizing that was when I started reading about and going through the Snowden story in archives. Many of them pertain to the KIA or the Pentagon or Homeland Security or Allied Intelligence Services in the UK and Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Every single document essentially in this archive bears a secrecy designation. Most of them are top secret. And yet, one of the things that was so striking to me as I was going through this archive is that most of the documents I was seeing, despite the fact that they were marked top secret, were completely banal, boring even. There were instructions on how NSA employees should obtain parking credentials or requesting vacation days, and that would be marked secret, which meant technically it was a crime to disclose it. That was true of the vast majority of the archive. That's because in Washington, everything is reflexively a secret. It's reflexively marked classified. Therefore, it's illegal to describe what the government is doing. So often for that reason, when I hear, oh, so-and-so leaked classified information or was careless with classified materials, the reason I scoff at that is because I know that most often classified documents are harmless. They're empty. It just means the government is talking about them or doing them. That's all it means. There's no discretion ever exercised about what should and shouldn't be secret. Everything is made secret in Washington. We just heard about the now-forgotten leak by that young leaker Jack Texera who was discovered on Discord. When that leak was first unveiled and there were reports that he had leaked classified, top-secret information we heard, oh, these are the most sensitive documents the government has, and this is the most damaging and destructive leak in American history, as though the documents they're always trying to imply contain the names of undercover agents in the field, Chiao undercover agents or people who are working as informants to the U.S. government. Now, when we saw the documents, we saw that all of that was untrue. There was almost nothing in these documents that was barely above the level of what was publicly reported about the war in Ukraine. There were a few documents showing where U.S. troops were stationed, possibly that is legitimately classified. But it's not as though the world crumbles if that gets revealed because those documents were revealed and to this day there's no harm demonstrated. And that's true in almost every case. When WikiLeaks first published its mother, Load of Top Secret Information, many national security officials came out under the Obama administration and claimed WikiLeaks had blood on its hands. And yet, later on, when media outlets tried to investigate that claim, they discovered that there was actually no harm that could be demonstrated to any individual as a result of WikiLeaks' publication. They hadn't uncovered the names of any agents in the field. They hadn't put anyone in danger because they were actually very careful about how they were redacting those documents. Even the documents in unredacted form ended up being harmless, though informative. The same is true during the Snowden case. They made all those claims about how blood would be on the journalists' hands because they were disclosing these documents. 
To this day, if you ask a single national security official to be specific about any harm that was caused as a result of the reporting they did, they are incapable of providing any explanation. The same can be said with the Pentagon Papers. It's always the same claim. Oh, this is an incredibly dangerous leak. It puts people in harm's way. The reality is the only people put in danger and the only people put in danger and the only people these leaks harm are the people whose criminal acts or deceit are unveiled. That's who gets harmed and almost never the public. Now, we've already heard in the indictment that some of these documents that President Trump is alleged to have taken involve things like nuclear strategy and a potential attack on Iran. But there's absolutely no evidence. It's not even alleged that any harm got created as a result of President Trump's mishandling of these materials. If he in fact did it, or his decision to share with certain people what the content of these documents was, he was able to do that for four years had he wanted to, to the extent there's an implication that he was trying to help America's enemies or anything else. He had control of the entire classified system. I say all this to be very, very skeptical when we hear this hysteria about what it means to leak classified information including top-secret documents about how deceitful those claims almost always are. Leaks? A. Motive? The point that I want to make is in these cases where people leak, classify information, the motive is always the most important question. There's a big difference between being careless with classified information, the way President Trump is accused of, the way Hillary Clinton was accused of, nobody ever got charged versus having some malicious motive, the way David Petraeus, President Obama's former SEA director, was accused of. When he shared genuinely sensitive documents with his mistress in order to enable her to write an adoring biography of him, or when Leon Panetta shared top-secret information about the operation that led to Osama bin Laden's capture because he wanted filmmakers in Hollywood to be able to make a pre-election hagiography about President Obama and his capture of Osama bin Laden called Zero Dark Thirty. Obviously, if someone sells classified information to an enemy government or passes them to an enemy government, that's a malicious motive entirely. Then you have the most noble motive, which is when somebody inside the government who has access to classified information discovers that the government is lying or engaging in criminality, and the disclosure of these documents would reveal it. So what is President Trump's motive here, allegedly? Was he trying to help the enemy government? Was he trying to expose government secrets to put people in danger? There's no allegation of that. At the most extreme, this is a case of carelessness, of taking some documents that he should have left in the White House, but believing he had the right to take them because he was the president. I think that is another key point, and that's what makes this case so bizarre. It's one thing to take lower-level national security officials and prosecute them for disclosing classified material without authorization because they have no legal right to declassify information. The classification designations bear on them, bind them. When it comes to the person who is the president, if they have the power to declassify, then, at the most extreme, it's a bureaucratic transgression. To take documents without having first declassified them, it's a bureaucratic oversight, just like the indictment in Manhattan that alleges that President Trump and the Trump Organization improperly classified the payments to Stormy Daniels as payments to Michael Cohen. It was a bookkeeping misdemeanor at its most extreme that Alvin Bragg turned into a felony for political motives. It's not unlike what this case is, either. If you think about it, they acknowledge that President Trump had the power to declassify this material if he wanted. They allege that he failed to, that he forgot to, that he forgot to, that he neglected to, but he could have. And if had he done so, there's no question this wouldn't be a crime once material is declassified. It's no longer a crime to take it, to mishandle it, to show it to other people. And so if President Trump had the power to declassify this information, and the argument is he just failed to. At best, the seven felony counts amount to what is really nothing more than a bureaucratic oversight, which, 
happens to be the same basis for the Manhattan indictment as well. I think we have to be able to draw a distinction between a bad judgment and breaking the law when the federal police apparatus conflates the two that's a threat to liberty for everyone, not just President Trump, but every American, where every misjudgment is treated as a violation of law. Good leaks is fuel for Washington. The hypocrisy at the heart of this case and the reaction to it is so large that it could explode mountains. Washington runs on leaks of classified information every single day, literally every single day, literally every single day. People inside the government call up their favorite media employees, their favorite employees of corporate media, and they leak classified information to them, oftentimes completely fabricated information concealed behind the classified labels to make it appear authentic. And yet almost nobody is prosecuted for such leaks ever, even when the motive is purely political. Throughout the Trump years, we had some of the most serious, some of the gravest leaks of classified information, leaks imaginable to the Washington Post and the New York Times seemingly every day as part of Russiagate or other efforts to sabotage or undermine Donald Trump. To this day, nobody cares about finding those leakers because in Washington, leaking classified information is what makes that city run. It's what makes the political establishment run. It's what makes the media establishment run. Just to give you one example with a case of Michael Flynn, the incoming national security advisor for President Trump, who was prosecuted by the Mueller investigation for the crime of picking up the telephone and calling the Russian ambassador in order to say, I'm about to become national. Security advisor and I think we should smooth over us. Russian relations, which is exactly what you would want an incoming national security advisor to do, but because they were determined to criminalize Michael Flynn, they turned that into a felony. Then the FBI, on its own accord, went to General Flynn, having learned through a telephone intercept that they talked to the ambassador, and they made a perjury trap for him. They said, when you talked to the ambassador, the Russian ambassador, did you talk about sanctions? This was weeks later. His memory was foggy. He had no reason to cover it up. It wouldn't have been a crime for him to talk to the Russian ambassador. They claim, and the notes are very ambiguous, that General Flynn said, I'm not sure I did, I'm not sure I did, or I don't think I did. That became the foundation for the criminal prosecution a perjury or obstruction charge, which is what they do. They turn process crimes into the way to criminalize the people that they don't want, that they want criminalized. For years, under liberal jurisprudence, there was a belief most vehemently expressed by Ruth Bader Ginsburg and other liberal justices in the Supreme Court that you should not be able to be turned into a criminal simply because you falsely deny behavior to the FBI that you have the right to deny. To the FBI, things that you've done that could lead to a criminal prosecution that that's a form of the right against self-incrimination. And yet, that was the entire basis of the prosecution of Michael Flynn. The important thing about this prosecution is that the only reason we learned that Michael Flynn called Ambassador Kislyak and talked about sanctions was because the NSA was spying on Ambassador Kislyak. He was a target of NSA surveillance, which makes sense. He's a high-level official of an adverse foreign government. That's what the NSA does. And they happened to catch Ambassador Kislyak talking to an American citizen, Michael Flynn, even though they had no warrants. Now, this spying, this kind of eavesdropping, where the NSA spies on a foreign citizen and therefore claims they need no warrants, enables them to eavesdrop on a call that an American citizen has with that foreign target. That was the basis for the Bush, Cheney Illegal Eavesdropping Scheme in 2002. It used to be you needed a warrant if you found out that someone you were listening to ended up talking to an American citizen because foundational to American democracy and the American Constitution is the idea that the U.S. government cannot spy on your calls unless it has a warrant, even if you're talking to a foreign adversary or a foreign citizen. But by 2008, the Congress, with the support of the Democratic Party, changed that law and retroactively legalized the Bush 
Chinese spying program to make it legal for the UNSO to spy on your calls without a warrant, as long as you're talking to a foreign citizen. And that was how they eavesdropped on the call of Michael Flynn, even though they had no warrant to do so. They claimed, oh, Michael Flynn wasn't really our target. Our target was the Russian ambassador whom he called. The way we ended up learning about Michael Flynn's conversation with the ambassador is because somebody inside the U.S. government leaked the transcript of the NSA intercept to David Ignatius of the Washington Post, who was the first in early 2017 to report that Michael Flynn had called the Russian ambassador and talked about sanctions. Under the criminal law, that is the most serious kind of leaking of classified information, leaking the intercepts that the NSA has on the calls of foreign leaders and foreign officials, because obviously if you leak those kinds of transcripts, it makes those individuals like Ambassador Kitt aware that the NSA is successfully eavesdropped on them, and that, of course, makes them change how they communicate. This is one of the few areas leaking SA intercepts where it's a felony, not only to leak it from inside the government, but also to publish it. It's one of the few types of leaks that makes it a crime for the journalists to publish it. That's how serious they regard these leaks. And yet, to this day, five years later, not only was the leaker never caught, the one who leaked the transcript of the NSA called a David Ignatius, no one talks about it, no one cares. Because these kinds of leaks happen every day. All the people you see on TV who are expressing outrage and indignation that President Trump would treat classified information carelessly or recklessly every single day, people inside the government call them and give them classified information every day. You turn on Khan or you open the New York Times, the Washington Post, and there will be stories saying anonymous sources tell us X, E, Y, and Z happened, where X, I, and Z is classified. These leaks are the stuff on which Washington runs, and nobody ever is prosecuted except low-level leakers, people like Edward Snowden or Chelsea Manning or Chelsea Manning or Daniel Ellsberg. They go to prison for a long time for doing it. But senior officials in Washington are never prosecuted, essentially for this. If they are prosecuted, they are never really treated like criminals. They never go to prison. That is what makes this prosecution of President Trump for doing something that happens every day in Washington so suspicious. According to the indictment, two other counts are not about President Trump's taking classified information, but are about his alleged obstruction of the investigation into this. That is so often what happened in the Mueller investigation. They would investigate somebody who wouldn't find a crime, but they would turn the person into criminals during the investigation. That's how they convicted Michael Flynn and got him to plead guilty. That's how they convicted Roger Stone and so many other Trump allies. Having some understanding of this history, my guess is President Trump looked at this prosecution with great hostility and that probably led him to be pretty hostile to the investigators who now turn that hostility into an obstruction charge. We'll have to see what the evidence shows about whether he did that, but the focus of the indictment, the reason why the investigation existed in the first place, is the allegation that he mishandled information in violation of the Espionage Act. Stay tuned for part three of the series. The defense?